Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in this house, all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa. I could tell people I'm into minimalism. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 78 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known as DCU. And since their beginnings as a credit union for the employees of Digital Equipment Corporation back in 1979, DCU has never lost sight of its roots of being a not-for-profit financial cooperative owned by and operated by and for their members. A lot of things can change in 40 years, but some things remain constant, like DCU's unwavering commitment to provide exceptional service and to make a positive impact in the communities where their members live and work. No matter what their members' unique goals are, they are committed to helping them the only way they know how. And that's the DCU way, which consists of three simple philosophies that guide each and every DCU team member. People come first, do the right thing, and make a difference. And giving back is central to what they do. And I know this because I have been involved with so many charitable initiatives over the years with DCU. And I'm proud to have them as a sponsor of the Mistress Carrie podcast. Now, before we get to this week's episode, I want to remind you about the online store at mistresscarry.com. There are tons of things up there on the website. T-shirts and hoodies, beanies and baby onesies, coffee mugs, pint glasses, shot glasses, stickers, patches, mouse pads, and so much more. And you can order straight off the website at mistresscarry.com. And Mistress Carrie official merchandise is also available at Joe's Albums in Worcester and Northampton. Okay, this episode of the podcast was so much fun. I got to know Ben Bruce from Asking Alexandria. Now, the band had just gotten their first number one rock song just before he and I talked. And we had a chance to talk about the writing process for Asking Alexandria. His songwriting process, growing up learning how to play the guitar how he dealt with all of the lockdown, being away from his family in England while here in the States, the bands that inspired him, developing his own guitar tone, and being the father of four kids under six years old during a pandemic. Oh yeah, Ben must have the patience of a saint. It was really cool getting to know him, and I also got some very cool Asking Alexandria gossip out of him as well. He was so much fun and so easy to talk to, and I think you're going to love this interview. So allow me to introduce you to Ben Bruce from Asking Alexandria. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely good eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. 
Wayne, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturb, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hello. Hello. We're having coffee together. I appreciate you hanging out yeah. with me, Ben. I appreciate you hanging out with me. I had nothing else to do anyway. Well, there you go. You're already in the Christmas spirit, I see, with your mug. Oh, my God, yeah. So I love Christmas so much because for me, being an expat, um, Christmas is like the one time a year where it's almost guaranteed until you have a pandemic that I get to see my mom and my dad and my sister and everyone. Um, I haven't seen them in a couple of years because of this pandemic. Um, but yeah, so I love Christmas because it's just a time where we all get together and we, we won't tour on Christmas. And so um, I got home from tour. I flew home uh, in the middle of tour on Halloween to take my kids trick-or-treating. And I got home and my wife had surprised me and she'd already decorated the house for Christmas and uh, so yeah, we're all we're Christmas Christmasified. Well, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because weren't you born on Halloween? I was, yeah. So I hate it. So you it's do terrible. hate it. See, I'm. It's my favorite day of the year, and I get mad when people bypass Halloween and start putting Christmas stuff up in October. Well, so this this interview is cancelled. <laughs> uh, no, I mean I, it's not. Look, I loved it when I was a kid, but then as I got older and I started wanting to <clears throat> celebrate my birthday by having a glass of wine and a nice meal with friends, you can't. Do it, it can't happen because everyone's too busy dressing up like a fucking idiot <laughs> and uh, going out and and just getting hammered, which is something I don't enjoy doing anymore. So. It's just it's just me being selfish. I'm like, hey, but this is my day. But you know, now that I've got kids, I'm finding a new a, a newfound love for for Halloween again. Like I said, I flew home in the middle of tour to take them trick or treating, and they loved it. They had the best time ever. So I'm a, I'm a believer again. I have a friend that was born on Christmas. Oh, and that's not- exactly. That's what he says. For the same reasons for you being born on Halloween that. And nobody remembers his birthday. He can't go out anywhere and do anything on his actual birthday because it's Christmas Day. People will be cheap, too, and they'll be like, here's your Christmas slash birthday present. (laughs) He should demand two. Right? Exactly. (laughs) So you talk about the pandemic, and, uh, you know, I have the the fortunate situation of being able to talk to a lot of artists a lot of the time and everyone's experience has been a little bit different. Now you're talking about the fact that you were kind of holed up in the U S is your wife American? Is that how you ended up just staying here all the time? Yeah, she's American. Um, um, obviously we've got four kids and just, uh, traveling on an airplane. We could have gone back to England because, because I am English, I could have gone home and they would have let all of us in because because they're my family. Um, but my parents couldn't come out here because they they closed the, the borders and they don't have an American passport or, or residency or anything. But we didn't we didn't go home because it just felt a little bit irresponsible to take four young children on an airplane during a pandemic. They, none of them are vaccinated yet. They're all super young. Um, so, yeah, we kind of just been uh, here. 
you know missing missing my family this is the first time i've not seen my family in in this this long so it's been it's been pretty tough but on the flip side of that i've got to spend so much time with my wife and kids that i'm never awarded because we're always on tour so actually i i've quite enjoyed it i've really i've really enjoyed being being home and just being able to to take my musician hat off and just be a dad and a husband it's the same kind of thing that I hear from a lot of artists. Like early on in the pandemic, I talked to Corey Taylor and he was like, I went to Home Depot and just like got to do stuff around the house because you guys, for for music fans, you know, you come into our town for a show and it's a big deal and we can't wait. And then you go on to the next town where it's the big deal and whatever. And you don't get to do quote unquote normal Stuff like yeah. what normal stuff did you absolutely love doing at home with the kids? You know what's funny? So two things that are going to sound well. One of them sounds pretty cool, I guess. I, I I learned how to cook, and it turns out I'm really good at cooking. So I love to cook like high end meals and stuff. Now I'm, I'm really thoroughly enjoyed it. But the thing that I picked up that I would say is normal that I love, and my wife just makes so much fun of me for now is gardening. I like I I just t- started taking so much pride in my yard and my garden and I used to get landscapers to do everything I I mean this is going to sound terrible but I fired them all. Uh, <laughs> sorry, but I, because I was enjoying taking care of it and I've bought trees and flowers and seeds and you know I've taken the kids out with me and we've planted seeds together and we take care of the yard and it's slowly migrating into my house too. I've got so many plants that I keep buying and my wife's like you don't need any more plants. I'm like no, I know, but. I just bought some more. I'm I'm a gardener as well. I love it. I, I have a massive vegetable garden and I've been planting fruit trees and berry bushes and I love it. And it was great during the pandemic to be able to be outside. And there's also something yeah. amazing about eating food that you grew too. Yeah. So that's another thing that once I found this, this love for, for that and uh, just looking at the state of the world and thinking someone's going to hit the big red button at some point soon. Uh, I was like, I want to start growing my own food um, and vegetables, fruits and vegetables and such. And so me and my wife have bought a huge lot of land. We've bought acreage um, that we hope to to build our sort of forever home on one day. And it's got enough space for us to, to grow all our own food and have our own water supply and all that good stuff. I've been a doomsday prepper for years. And everybody used to tell me how paranoid I was and how crazy I was. And then literally within a few weeks of the pandemic, people started apologizing to me. It's crazy, isn't it? Because I'm not I'm not a doomsday prepper. I don't think if doomsday's around the corner, I mean, take me out with it. I don't want to be <laughs> a soul survivor. Um, but I do what it has made me realize is how reliant we are upon everything. Right. You know what I mean? Like you couldn't even buy bog roll to wipe your ass during the pandemic for months. It's like, how are we this reliant on things? And you don't really think about well it takes trucks to get from one place to another and people to do this and so for me it was a bit of an eye-opener which is why I, you know I did I do want to start sort of growing my own food and I'm, I'm not gonna lie I did buy like those straws that you can drink out of like a toilet with and all that stuff do you know what I mean so I was yeah, like but that's good stuff to have yeah and so I've got a bunch of dehydrated food that I'm sure tastes like dehydrated food but that mainly was more because we moved to uh Charleston South Carolina and there's I don't know if anyone told you this, but there's tornadoes and hurricanes here. We didn't know. Uh, <laughs> so now we have stuff. <laughs> well, I'm an East Coast person as well. I was born and raised in Boston. So, I love, huh? I love Boston. It's one of my favorite cities in America. 
Well, I, I would think because you're British that it is a little bit of making you feel like home, right? It is. And that's why I moved to Charleston, because this Charleston was founded by the Brits, too. So like all the cobbled streets were laid down by the Brits when we came over here. And Charleston was named after King Charles. And it's, it's very similar to Boston, uh, just less loud. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, the city or the people? Pretty both. <laughs> when you when you're working on your house and you're with the kids and are the kids aware of what dad does? Because I love hearing stories about tattooed musicians that everyone thinks is so cool, except their own kids. Their own kids never think they're cool. My kids think I'm really cool, I, <clears throat> but they're the only ones to be fair. So I'm not a particularly cool musician, but to them I am. And they're like, they'll see pictures of like, rock stars doing their thing they'll see like a video of the rolling stones on television or something and they'll be like oh look it's it's a rock star like dan i'm like it's so nice to be compared to the rolling stones it's <laughs> only you that does that but thanks you know and my son's got like fake tattoos all on his arms and he'll come into my office when i'm uh recording and writing and he'll stand on that table behind me and he'll just strum and headbang and my little my youngest son has drumsticks and he's like da 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 they think it's the coolest. So I'm sure they won't at some point, but I'm enjoying it while they do. Does music Before run in your family? Did you, do your parents have musical ability? Yeah. So my dad's a blues musician and uh, on my mom's side of the family, um, she, her great uncle was a, he's a gentleman, was a gentleman. He's gone, he's passed away now. Obviously he's uh, called Harry Mortimer. It was a very famous brass band conductor in England. And he was actually awarded uh, an OBE by the Queen of England, which is just a step before knighthood. So Elton John and that got Sir. He didn't get to Sir, but he was awarded a an OBE from the Queen of England for his services to the the music industry. So it does run in the family. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's good. So I'm hoping. Well, I'm not hoping that my kids follow in my footsteps, but at least that they have a passion for it. So when you were growing up. What was the music you were listening to in the house? What did you get exposed to first? Was it that kind of music? So my grandma also played piano a lot too. So when I was really young, um, I, used to, I used to go and say my grandparents a lot. We were just so close. Even from like the age of two, my mom would leave me there for weeks. Not because she didn't want to watch me, but just because I loved my grandparents so much. And so I'd ask to go. And my grandma listened to, it was her um, family that was the Harry Mortimer. So she introduced me to that. She played a lot of classical music. So I was I brought brought up on that in her house. And then my parents were divorced. So my dad, like I said, is a blues musician. So he introduced me to like BB King and Eric Clapton and Gary Moore and all these these uh, fantastic blues musicians. And then my stepdad is like a rock and metalhead. So he introduced me to like Deep Purple and Pink Floyd and and all the stuff. So I grew up quite literally listening to such a huge spectrum of music that it's, it's followed on through now. Like I love everything. I love country music, classical, blues, pop, rock, metal. Um, and I think that's what you, I feel like in Asking Alexandra, you can hear all those influences too, which to, for some people it's been like, well, why is Asking sound like this? And it's like, well, because I love all this music. And so I find it really hard to concentrate when I'm writing a record. I just so much stuff's coming at me and into my brain. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I grew up just absolutely loving music. And from such a young age too, my dad knew, my, my parents knew, so my dad bought all kinds of recording equipment and drum kits and guitars and all this stuff so he could record me as a kid. Um, so he's got 
recordings of, of, of mine from when I'm like, I don't know, eight years old, nine years old, all the way through until I left home, which is kind of cool. It's really crazy how at such a young age you can show proficiency with something. And I say that because my parents bought me a tape recorder and it had a handle on it and you could put a cassette in it and you plugged a microphone into it. And I used to go yeah. around and interview people when I was a kid. No way. That's all. So you just, so they, you just, sometimes you just know. Yeah, you know, that's, that's what I'm, I'm saying. It's crazy. I'm trying to nurture that too right now. Cause my son, my oldest son, he's four and he, all he does, all he cares about right now is front flipping and back flipping off the couch. And he's insane. Like he can do handstands. And I'm like, this kid, this kid's really good. And Needs really to be in the Olympics. Exactly. So we've just put him in gymnastics classes and he went to his first one last week and the guy was like, this is insane. This kid's like doing things that an eight-year-old should be starting to learn. And he's, he's four. So I'm just going to nurture whatever, whatever my kids show me that they're interested in, much like that. You know, it's, it's important because you people know. Yeah. Wait. So your oldest is four and you my have- old- my oldest son is four. My oldest daughter is five. You've got four kids under five in the house right now? I do, yeah. Six if you ask my wife, but I'm way over five. <laughs> She's a liar. Well, I mean, no wonder you were outside trying to find a tranquil place to do some gardening during the pandemic. Exactly, exactly. No, they're, they are. It's chaos. But I love it. I love that it's chaos. Like, it doesn't stress me out in the slightest. There's it's like a it's it's quite literally like a movie like cheap i doesn't something one of my kids will be swinging off the chandelier while the other ones managed to get in himself stuck in the sink trying to get bits of leftover chocolate and my daughter's upstairs just doing maths for some reason yeah it's, <laughs> it's fun it's a lot of fun but is chaos. your wife southern she's not southern she's uh she's from arizona Oh, okay. I was going to say, because if your wife was from the Northeast, like up where I'm from, she probably would have stabbed you in your sleep by now. I'm sure she's thought about it. (laughs) So when you're growing up with all this blues influence and all of this classical influence, I have this theory that you grow up exposed to the music by your family and your peers. And then there's an artist or a song or something that draws a line in the sand and you go, okay, this is now my music. What band or song was it that you went from, oh, I know Deep Purple and Eric Clapton because my parents played it for me too. This is my generation's music. This is what I like. You know, it's funny because um, that definitely did happen. And, and I used to make like mixtapes from my parents and my grandparents to show them the stuff I was listening to. And it was bands. It was, it was new metal, you know, it was Slipknot, it was System of Down, it was Linkin Park. It was all this stuff. But for me, it, it really, honestly, it's funny because you mentioned Corey Taylor and he's actually, he's a really close friend of mine now, which is insane. Like he calls himself uncle Corey when he, when we're talking about my kids and stuff, but it was Slipknot for me. It really was. I, I, I heard Slipknot, um, I think it was Eyeless, and I was just like, whoa, this is unlike anything I've ever heard before. And so I was showing my parents, and it got to the point where I was borderline obsessed. I, I graffitied my mom's car with Slipknot lyrics. Um, I went as Joey Jordison to Halloween one year. I remember at school we did DT, which I think in America they call it woodwork or something. Um, we call it DT. And I, our thing was, the project was to make something. So I made a CD rack, CD holder, 
And he was like, well, it's just wood. So I went, oh, okay. And I painted it black, poured red paint on top. So it was like blood. And I just wrote Slipknot on the base. I was like, there we go. There's my, I was obsessed with Slipknot. And that, that was the line in the sand for me. And um, I'm know, still obsessed with Slipknot. They're a great band. You know, they're really, really great. And the fact, like I said, Corey's, Corey Taylor's, to me, one of the greats, you know, and he, but he's still so down to, I mean, you were talking to him. He's so down to earth. He's so yeah. humble. He's not at all a pretentious rock star. And I just, it's, it's, uh, you know, from inspiring me as a kid to, to play heavier music all the way up until now is, is inspiring me to sort of keep a level head. And it's like, well, if Corey Taylor's still a down to earth guy, there's no excuse for anyone to be a pretentious dick. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. Great band, great people. The radio station that I worked at for a bunch of years in Boston helped to break them on the radio. And I did one of their first TV interviews and I tried to interview all nine members of the original lineup of Slipknot simultaneously with one microphone. And the video is like up on YouTube and they were like picking my nose and like poking my ears. And um, those early days when that first Slipknot record came out... um, those those were some nights oh yeah i can imagine they're still it's so weird too because we've played with them so many times and to watch them you know to hang out with them backstage and just talk and chill and and then when it's like okay it's time for the show it's like they flip a switch and then they're weird and it's like okay (laughs) these guys are fucking weird they're crazy on stage put on the greatest rock show ever and then they come off stage and they turn the switch off again i'm like that's fucking insane when Corey was drinking, it was a whole different thing. Cause I was around in the height of all of that kind of partying yeah. and the craziness would follow off stage. I can imagine. Yeah. I've not. So in, in my lifetime of being knowing Corey and then eventually becoming friends with Corey, I've only ever known him sober. So I've, I've never met that, but you know, I, I, uh, some of the other guys, I think, I think they still drink, but I, you know, like I'd be watching side stage and Sean would come over with a bottle of whiskey and he'd grab me on side stage and just pour it into my mouth. I'm like, I hate whiskey, but I mean, it's Slipknot. Yeah. Do you have any kind of weird on stage injury? Cause clown just tore his bicep hitting a keg with a baseball bat. He just had to have surgery. Yeah. Um, nothing like that. Uh, but I, I've hurt myself on stage so many times. I mean, I used to do such stupid shit. Like I used to, if we were playing in a theater, I would climb up to the second story of the theater and jump off the, the second story into the crowd, all kinds of things. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think like, I, they were always self-inflicted injuries too. Like punching my guitar and taking stupid chunks out or breaking my hand. Um, but, you know, I don't think I've ever, thankfully, touch wood, really, really injured myself um, by accident on stage. I've fallen off stage a bunch of times. That's really just injured my pride. <laughs> that seems to happen to everyone. <laughs> it's impossible for it to not. And as soon as you, you're going forward too, there's nowhere to put your hands down. It's down a good six to eight feet. And you've got a guitar in your hand. So it's like, what are you supposed to do? I, we were on tour with um, Shinedown um, 2019, before the pandemic. And... Um, we walk out, and at this point in our career, we were opening our set with uh, the violence, which I start that song. So it starts with the guitar riff, and then the band kicks in. So I walk out, and I go to step on my ego riser, and my foot misses, and I just fall off the front of the stage. But I don't miss a note. I'm like there, like, and everyone on the front row is just like, oh, looking down at the floor, and I'm just down there in a pile. But 
the show must go on. I didn't miss a note. So for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what an ego riser is, it's they're the little stages that are on the stage for you guys when you're doing solos or whatever to kind of jump up yeah, on. Yeah, but or- the stage isn't quite tall enough, so you need an extra foot of height just to really reach that godlike status, you know. What a silly idea. Who's, who made the ego riser? Had to be Axel Rose or someone. <laughs> I'm fairly certain they had those before Axel. <laughs> well, someone. Speaking of the Shinedown guys, another group of guys that's just so genuine and nice and nicest guys in the world. Yeah, I live down the, the street from Eric, so um, we we had our first number one radio single I last was, week. I Finally. was gonna con- I was gonna congratulate you. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, Eric texted me. He was like, "Dude, like that's a huge deal. You're number one." I was like, "You've had like all the number ones." He was like, "Yeah, but it's still a huge milestone." He was like, "Think about all the kids." that start playing music and then some of them get to go into garage and then some of them get out their garage and some of them get into them. It's like, you can work your way up that ladder and you've got a number one rock song in all of America right now. I was like, Oh damn, I never thought about it like that. That's awesome. And he was like, come on, we'll take me. So me and my wife and uh, him and his wife, he took us out for dinner and uh, just celebrated um, our first number one. But that's, I mean, that's again, that's the kind of people shine out. They're like, then I, we, Brent was there too. Um, Yeah. Just sweethearts. Next time you see them, if you tell them that you talk to me, uh, we go way, way back. Way, way back. Yeah, they've, I, way, I'll way probably back. tomorrow or something. They threw my wife's, our last baby, our baby, youngest baby is six weeks old currently. They threw the uh, the baby shower for this one. So there are, I'll probably see them in a couple of days. I have Mistress Carrie baby onesies that I need to get an address that I can send you. Because be they're awesome. really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I'd love that. Uh I, I made some that say like, you know, made in lockdown because so many I've people- had two in lockdown. <laughs> you obviously have not been spending all of your time in the garden. Just digging holes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So two two lockdown babies. When I when I talk to artists about being in a band, especially for as long as, I mean, you just said your number one, your first number one song, but that doesn't mean Asking Alexandria is a new band. You guys have been around oh. for a while. Yeah. Is it is it harder for you, in your opinion, to keep a band together or a marriage together? I ask everybody this question. Um, I think it just depends what stage of your life you're in, because I was. this is my second marriage, so obviously asked me, you know, seven years ago and it might, I might've said marriage because I think, you know, it's like you were just talking about Corey. There, there were wild days of drinking and stuff. And, you know, we were no exception. You get made to feel like, especially when you're on the up and up. Um, Cause when we came out, we were, there was a lot of hype surrounding our band and we got made to feel like we had to be rock stars and people just dubbed us the saviors of rock and roll. It's like rock and roll's back. And we were on the front cover of magazines being labeled like the hardest partying band on the planet stuff. And I was like, what? what? I grew up, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I never touched drugs growing up. None of it until this band started taking off and we got made to feel like we had to be rock and roll. We had to be rock stars and people just start throwing shit at you. And, you know, we, uh, we were young and impressionable and we fell down this rabbit hole and that's not conducive to a, to a healthy marriage, you know? And so my first marriage uh, broke apart, which, so to this day, you know, it's 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 not it's not a nice thing to to happen, but it did. But you got to learn from that. And so now, I my second marriage, I find it to be 
super easy because I've learned a lot. You know, I've learned how to be in a, in a, in a marriage, in a relationship and how to take care and nurture that relationship. But being in a band 12 years in, that's, it's very, very similar, honestly, like back when we were drinking and doing drugs and stuff, it's so hard to keep the band together. And that's why Danny left, you know, one of us would have done at that point because we were just, we were so insane and it was so much and it was so difficult and it gets tiring and your body starts shutting down and you're not really all there when you're, when you're behaving that way. But now, you know, with 12 years in, I think we're closer than we ever have been. And it's because it's the same thing. We've learned to nurture this relationship. Everyone has limits. Everyone has space that they need and you need to learn to respect that, respect each other. Um, people all need to feel, feel fulfilled in a band, you know, which is something that, we learn as the years as have gone by. So honestly, I think that they're, they're one in the same, very, very similar. And they're both so important, such huge parts of our lives that um, you have to make, you have to make time for both. You can't be like, I'm married now. Screw you guys. And <laughs> vice versa, you can't be like, well, sorry, sorry, Missy, I'm going out on tour. You know, it's, it's hard. Um, and then when each band member gets married and has kids, the circle of the band gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you have to try and, balance everything and make sure everyone's happy but you know you, if you care enough you you find a way i just got married for the second time last year in the middle of the pandemic so i totally get it yeah you know and so you probably learned a lot from the first one. Um, oh, i learned a whole bunch of shit <laughs> yeah well there we go you know so I, it's one of those things and some people get get divorced like i'm never getting married again but i think uh so long as you learn and you're happy it's yeah. good when you were growing up, do you remember the first guitar that you ever got? I actually do. Do you I, still have it? No, I don't because when I was super young, I was madly in love with another girl and her little brother wanted to learn to play guitar, so I gave it to him. <gasps> um, I know. And I don't even think, well, I don't know because I don't know. Maybe he's a famous musician now. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he still plays. I have no idea. But it was a Yamaha EG112. Um, and it was black with a white pit guard and it came with a little Yamaha practice amp. And I remember the amp had a little red button on it that when you pushed it, I thought I was Jimi Hendrix. It just, it made the amp, it was the distortion button. I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, this is the awesome red button that makes me sound good no matter what I do. And I know now that that's not the case, but it's still how I play guitar. So, you know, yeah, I remember it. I remember sticking stickers on it. I remember printing like Blink-182 logos and Slipknot logos and all this stuff and taping them onto it. And then I remember taking those off and having my mom paint it for me. Like, that guitar was, was cool. Piece of garbage, but it was my first guitar and I loved it. What did you learn how to play first? First thing I learned how to play was the James Bond theme tune because I got the guitar. Such a British was, answer. It's the best British answer ever. I mean, you know, that's it's it said it. It's it's in the rule book. If you're English and you get an instrument, you have to learn the James Bond theme tune, just in case. Just in case one day I get asked to do it, I asked Billie Eilish to do it. Why not me? Um, but yeah, no, my dad, my dad took it out of the case and I, I put it on. I pushed the red button. I was like, blah 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 blah. My dad was like, ooh, and he was like, let's figure this out. He'd never touched the guitar before, and he went bow 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 And he was like, okay, that's how that works. And he figured out the James Bond theme tune down digga down 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 digga down 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 and he taught it to me even though he'd never touched the guitar before and uh yeah that's where it that's where it all began 
I'm fortunate enough to have been able to speak to a lot of guitar players. And obviously, since the loss of Eddie Van Halen, it's like the entire guitar community kind of reeling from the loss of a, a pillar mm-hmm. in the genre. Yeah. Can you talk to me about guitar tone and where you think your guitar tone comes from? For me, it's for me, it's still an ongoing journey. It's so difficult because there's a lot of great players in the world. There's so many great players, you know, and, and I think a lot of it comes down to being a distinctive player is it's a lot of it comes down to that tone, you know, and I think for a singer, it's a lot easier for people to know who you are because they recognize your voice. They recognize that sound, you know, whether it's Danny or Corey Taylor or Freddie Mercury or, you know, that you, you hear a voice or Adele and you go, oh, that's Adele. You know the voice. For a guitarist, I think it's a lot more difficult. Um, but there are guitarists out there who, in my opinion, they make their guitars their voice. So as soon as Slash starts playing, so that's Slash playing. Or as soon as, even more recently, since the Gates, Brian from Avenged Sevenfold, as soon as he starts playing, I'm like, that's Brian. You know, he has a, a sound. Diane Bagdara was the same way. And for me, I really want that. And I think I've because of my upbringing, listening to so many different kinds of music, it's been harder for me to find a distinct sound, or at least to me anyway. A lot of people hear my playing and go, oh, that's 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 Ben Bruce playing, which I think is really cool. But I don't think I'm there yet. I'm still on on my journey to find my tone. And I think our new album, See What's on the Inside, I got so I've gotten so much closer to it and to to finding my my sound and my style and my tone. Um, but that's that's largely down to the fact that I think I've grown up in an era or been in a career band in an era where technology is starting to take over. And I think that sucks the life out of it, honestly. And, and you get these plugins and everyone has the same plugins and everyone starts to sound the same. It's digitized and you go on stage and you're using Axe Effects. Or, and I think that that's made it very difficult for modern day musicians to find their tone, find their sound. So on our new album, so it's on the inside, we said, no, we're not doing any of that. And we went back to old school heads and cabs and pedals. And we spent a long time honing in on, on tones and stuff. And so I think I'm closer than ever now than I have been because I've denounced modern like plugins and stuff and I've gone back to the old way. So I have to figure out myself how to make things sound cool. And I think that's, that's so important. And a lot of it comes down to the guitars you play too, I think. People ask me all the time what I think the future of rock and roll is going to have and include. And I think a lot of rock and roll is going to be going back and getting rid of a lot of that technology, like you said, because it's too easy to make it perfect and rock and roll is not supposed to be perfect. And that's something people need to realize too. When I go into a studio, it's like, okay, play that bit again. Why? That take was awesome. Yeah, but it was slightly out here or you missed this note here. I'm like, what do you, go listen to Mark Knopfler. Play, go listen to the guitar solo in Sultans of Swing. So you hear how many missed notes there are, but that's what makes it beautiful. Go listen to Sweet Child of Mine or Stairway to Heaven, any of the biggest guitar songs in the world. It's like, there's a mistake. There's a, But that's what makes that take magic, you know? And I think a lot of people don't, partake in that anymore it has to be perfect it has to be to the grid i think that's sad and if i'm being completely honest too i think a lot of bands that i grew up listening to have fallen into that trap too and lost some of that too you know like if i listen to, to a modern day slipknot i'm like this is so good it's still slipknot 
but there's there's a charm that's missing and i think it's because back in the day they weren't i don't even think they were using a click track or anything it was just ah and it was it was chaos but now it's orchestrated chaos and i think that takes away and we're we're guilty of it too you know and i think we're trying to step backwards a little bit and and get rid of some of that and it's like well if the take felt right it's right even if it's wrong if that makes sense yeah no it totally makes sense when you go in the studio and you're writing music what are you bringing riffs in are you bringing song ideas how does asking alexandria kind of put a song together what's your process um i normally start the, the process like it, for the last album in this room here I, I normally sit i've already started writing the next one i was i was in here last night until like 11 p.m writing two i wrote two um, songs, but it tends to start with a guitar riff. And normally, when we go into the studio, I will bring like complete songs in, and uh, people will listen and go, "This could be better," or "This could be better." And we tend to take pick songs apart and rebuild them in the studio uh, together. But I, I don't like going into the studio with nothing. I can't do that. I don't enjoy it. It's too stressful because then everyone sat around me looking at me, going, "Okay, what's your idea?" And I'm like, uh, "I don't necessarily have one right now." Um, so I like to be prepared when I go into the studio. One of the reasons I am not a songwriter, uh, underneath the fact that I can't write songs is that writing a song seems to me to be so personal, right? So you're in that room in your house and you come up with these ideas late night when it's finally quiet and all the kids are in bed and then you go in a room with your band and they don't like it. Yes. Talk to me about that. I can't imagine that. It's 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 taken a long time for me to get over that, but it is it can be hard, and it and you can, it's so hard to not take it personally, and for you not to be like, well, you fuck you, dude, like, <laughs> where's your be, song then? That would be yeah. me. Yeah. So it, well, and it and it did hurt my feelings for a long time. So it got to the point where it'd be like, well, I'm just going to go into the studio and record these songs, and then they can fly in and record over them. That way, there's no arguing, and I don't have to have my feelings hurt. But you know, over the that's not that's not good, and it. It comes back to what we were saying earlier about the relationship and everyone needing to feel fulfilled and stuff. And so that just doesn't really work out. So now I just have to embrace it and have to realize that maybe they're right. Because if they're hearing this and going, well, I don't like this, maybe when we release it to the world that people won't like it either. And it's not personal because music's subjective, you know, and that's the beautiful part of it. And I've learned over the years albums come out and I'm like, this album's awesome. But if I go back and listen to the initial idea very rarely is it exactly the same. And so I just have to think about that. It's like, well, the changes happen and that's makes it better. And that's part of what makes asking Alexandria, asking Alexandria instead of Ben Bruce. Talk to me about, I, I ask every artist this question and I love the answers. There's obviously no wrong answer because I'm not a songwriter <laughs> because I'm not a songwriter. The art and craft of songwriting to me seems so foreign. Can you give me an example or two, however many, of a song from a songwriter's perspective that you think is a perfect example of songwriting? Something that's so good in the craft that you covet it, that you wish you wrote it. And it doesn't matter the genre, the artist, anything. Oh, there's a, there's a million. Like, I, I, I hear so many songs, I'm like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like, there's a guy... There's a country artist out right now called Luke Combs, and I listen to his songs. And a lot of people like like Cam, the rhythm guitarist my band, he'll walk onto the bus and listen to it, and he'll go, "Oh, Ben's listening to his country music again." And I'm like, just listen 
to the listen to the lyrics and the, the melody and the structure. And it's like, I just find so much beauty in songwriting in so many different kinds. But I guess if I was going to pick a song, um, one of my favorite songs of all time is Blackbird uh, by the Beatles. I just think it's just, it's just, I don't even know how it's so good, but it's so good from the melody to the lyrics to the, the, the chord progressions. Like it's just, it's a stunning song, but Another one of my favorite songs, which I don't listen to too much anymore because I just it's been overplayed in my own life. So I, I never really go to it. Um, but when it comes on, I'm reminded of just how good it was. And it sm smells like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. And I think the reason I like it so much is because it makes me think. Because if I picked up my guitar and the, the distortion was half-assed and I played this sloppy ding, ding, chicka, dicka, ding, ding, I'd be like... This is garbage, do you know what I mean? And but it's not. And I think the beauty of that song lies within its simplicity. It, and that's what gives it so much energy. And that's why it became such a hugely successful song. Cause it was just like, oh, it it's one of those songs where it's like, it doesn't have to be good to be the best. It's so simple and it's so sloppy that it's like anyone could have written this, but they didn't. Kirk Vane did, you know, he wrote it because. It was some kind of sloppy genius. And so I listened to that song. And I'm like, this is a fucking fantastic song. It, and it's, it's just got so much energy and so much raw emotion. And I, I use that song all the time as a reminder that it's, it's, it's about what the song makes you feel when it comes out. That's what makes a good song, not how many notes are in it or how perfectly it's played or executed or not even the structure, but does this make you feel something? And that song does immediately right out the gates. You're like, oh, okay, I'm ready. This year, I heard two things that make me listen to that song totally different now. Dave Grohl on his um, From Cradle to Stage docuseries that he did talked about how he ripped the drum riff off from the Gap Band. Oh, wow. And I, I went, oh my God, he did. And the other thing, I interviewed Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister. I love Dee. And he talked about when, when he and I talked about how that riff, that opening riff, is is more than a feeling from Boston. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I and and, and being so from Boston, growing up, like I never put those two together. And D. Snyder now has made me listen to "Smells Like Teen Spirit" totally differently. It, 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 I mean, and it is too. And when you now that you hear it like that, you're like, oh, but that makes it even better. Cause I'm now I can sing two great songs over this. <laughs> awesome. Why has there not been a mashup made? I don't know. Ben, it was so awesome to get to meet you today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a blast. Congratulations on your first number one song. Hi. Thank you so much. Say hi. <laughs> oh. And make sure uh, when you see Eric and the Shinedown guys, make sure you tell them I said hi. And I'm sure that they will laugh and then tell you inappropriate stories. Loads of stories. I can't yes. wait. Next time I speak to them, like, I heard what you did. <laughs> Congratulations on everything. Enjoy your European tour. And we can't wait to have you back in the States playing shows. Thank you so much. Any Thank idea when that's going to happen? Um, I'm not supposed to say anything, but I will. We're booking a headline tour right now for May, June time. Yeah! I love Finally. getting the scoop. Our first headline tour in the States since 2018, I think. It's been a long time. Awesome. Well, we'll see you then. Yes, can't wait. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.
There he is, the one and only Ben Bruce from Asking Alexandria. I told you you were going to think he was cool. Their new album, See What's on the Inside, is available everywhere. Linked in the show notes of this episode are all of the links to find Asking Alexandria and Ben Bruce online and on social. And if you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast so you don't miss anything. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, and every weekday, you get the Situation Report. The sit rep breaks down all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in under five minutes. And that's how you'll find out when they schedule that tour he was hinting about. Also linked in the show notes of this episode is the corresponding playlist. All the music we talked about is in one easy-to-find playlist, So you can go and listen to everything that we were talking about and all of the songs that we referenced in the interview. All of the links to find me online and on social are there as well, including my website, mistresscarry.com, so you can check out my official online store. Once again, thanks to our sponsor, Digital Federal Credit Union. You can find them online at dcu.org. The Mistress Carry Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? (laughs) No, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.